so. The hard sayings of Jesus at healing Eucharist. <laughs> the lectionary does like its little jokes, doesn't it? If you grew up with a religious background that I did, or even if you didn't, right about now you should be all primed to hear me preach about the rapture and the end of days. This whole chapter, Luke 12, is full of passages that have all been read in very particular and particularly urgent ways by the church, and particularly by the charismatic and Pentecostal church. The thief in the night, the house divided against itself between believers and non-believers and the baptism of fire, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, reading the signs of the times, and of course, final judgment with its terrifying threat of debtor's prison. So, are we to imagine Christ's second coming and his judgment of the world is some sort of cosmic little Dorrit? In Charles Dickens' novel, which is set in debtor's prison, of which he had some personal experience, entire generations are born, live, and die without having the remotest prospect of freedom, and children grow up watching their elders crushed by the weight of past debts. Is this what Christ is driving at? Is this what the coming of the kingdom means when God will finally call in your student loans? <laughs> and if that's not the right answer, what are we to make of this language that Christ uses in these passages in such a way that still honors the power and the urgency of his warnings? One very definite possibility, of course, is that Luke is interpreting Christ's words in a very particular historical way, so as to foretell the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the staggering loss of the temple and the priests sustained by it, and the division of the Jewish community by the emergence of the new Christian sect. In the next chapter, Luke 13, Christ will describe the collapse of the Tower of Siloam and a cursed fig tree, both explicit parables of judgment. But interestingly, they are not the parables of judgment that you'd expect from a typical doomsday prediction. Christ explicitly refutes any particular guilt on the part of the victims of the tower catastrophe, and the fig tree in Luke is given fertilizer, a reprieve, and at least one final chance to produce fruit. We are not necessarily supposed always to find linear cause and effect between personal sin and earthly catastrophe. I would humbly submit that the language of Luke 12 is in keeping with many other parables of Christ, which are full not of well-meaning righteous people, but of wise serpents, outright rascals and rogues who act not with Paul's agonies of self-recrimination, but with utterly predictable and calculating selfishness in the face of crisis. <laughs> the unjust judge gives the poor widow justice just so that she will stop bothering him. The prodigal son knows just what to say to get the fatted calf killed for him. Most of the guests at the wedding banquet who were invited at the last minute still know to turn up politely in their nice clothes to get a free meal. The corrupt manager knows how to hand out a few last favors when he knows he is about to lose his job. I think we are supposed to find these stories wryly and darkly funny. If these idiots know how to prioritize and then act in their own best interest, Christ is asking, shouldn't you? The health of your immortal soul is at stake here. 
There is an impending and unavoidable crisis in each of our lives that can't help but interrupt all of our best laid plans, completely aside from any religious motivation. Shouldn't you act in your own best interests? Luke 12 then represents a heaven's eye view of our lives, almost as if we were viewing them through the wrong end of a telescope. In medieval scriptural exegesis, this was referred to as an anagogical reading of scripture, namely when scripture gives us a window into heavenly reality, and sometimes we see those heavenly realities looking back. Seen from that outside perspective, the biggest reckoning we will face, Christ teaches, is always and only with God. What the signs of the times tell us, then and now, is that life is uncertain, death is certain, the thief will come and we do not expect him, and the greatest treasure that we possess is ourselves and each other. In the eyes of a God who sees everything and does not forget the smallest sparrow, we are worth so much. And therefore, so are the decisions we make with ourselves and with one another. We are not our own to hate and abuse, and neither are our sisters and brothers. We are utterly, inescapably, terrifyingly, reassuringly, all of us, in the hands of God. Worrying from this perspective is worse than useless, <laughs> because it encourages us to believe that with and through worry, we actually control the things that we are worrying about. Alternately, if we are not the worrying sort, if we abuse others to gratify our own desires, like the slave a few verses earlier in the chapter who sets himself up as a petty tyrant over the other slaves, we forget who it is who actually owns the house and each and every one of us, and that we will have to give him a reckoning. The signs of impending crisis are all around us. The debt is about to be called in. Forget piety, forget looking good. Acting cynically and in your own best interest, what do you have to do to settle out of court, since there is no way you are getting off this particular hook? In a way, then, that last parable of debtor's prison is, to me, cynically and darkly encouraging. It suggests to me that God isn't ever done with us. He does expect a return on his investment, namely, in the healing and rehabilitation of our souls, no matter how long it takes. Whatever we may encounter in the afterlife, I highly doubt that we will find there a gated community of the elect and the chosen few. For better and for worse, we are all stuck with one another for all eternity. <laughs> so how would it be if we lived our lives as if that were actually the case? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.